0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie talks with book jacket designer Peter Mindelson about what makes a great book cover, about rebranding classic authors, and about his fears of the iPad and the Kindle. I feel the hot breath of the Kindle on my neck when I'm working. I know that there's going to be a moment where I'm going to be out of a job. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Peter Mendelssohn used to be a classical musician, but then one day he woke up to find that he was 30, and a new father, and in need of a more lucrative career. He knew he liked to read and to make things, and so after six months of making CD cover art, Mendelssohn showed his portfolio to a friend of a friend named Chip Kidd. A week later, he had a job at Vintage. It was his first and only paying gig as a designer. In the decades since, Mendelssohn has become an associate art director at Knopf and has designed book covers for the likes of Kafka, Nabokov, and Dostoevsky. And yes, he thanks his lucky stars. Welcome to Design Matters, Peter Mendelssohn.
0: Thank you for having me, Debbie.
1: Oh, it's great to have you here. Now, I understand that you were actually not quite sure that you technically graduated.
0: (laughs) Oh, you read that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I did indeed. (laughs) I
0: think I was a bit of a reprobate, especially that last year of college. You know, Columbia has uh, this core curriculum where you have to take sort of a regimented series of classes. And I think the one that I was technically missing was P.E. Yes, phys ed. I did read that. Oh, OK. So I, I have actually officially graduated. I have a <laughs> B.A.
1: <laughs> so so you graduated in 1990 then. That sounds right. From yep. Columbia University mm-hmm. with a degree in philosophy. Yeah. And then you worked as a concert pianist.
0: Yeah. I mean, I had been working as a pianist through my college career as well. I mean, I've been playing since I was four years old. I had a job as an accompanist at Manhattan School of Music while I was at Columbia just to pay the bills. And um, directly after college, I started performing and concertizing. And uh, then after a period of about two years, went to graduate school to get a master's and study with a particular teacher who I'd heard a lot about. And then after that, it was, uh, yeah, a lot of playing concerts and chamber music and composing and And
1: i understand that in your free time at columbia you used to play the organ at saint paul's (laughs) chapel
0: yeah um yeah (laughs) that's right i did mostly really late at night it sounds really sinister but it was actually some of the happiest moments of my life i'm a huge baroque music fan and uh yeah playing the organ is an amazing experience it's not just your two hands playing contrapuntally, but your feet as well. I don't know if you know that, but, you know, there's a keyboard for your feet. I did not know that. So it's really, uh, apart from being enveloped by the sound, because it's a huge amount of sound that comes out of these organs, and that was a particularly great one. It was an alien Skinner, but it's a full-body experience.
1: So there you are as a concert pianist, and mm-hmm. you're looking to make a bit more money in order to support yes. your newborn daughter. Mm-hmm. And really, the decision to get a better job was
0: because of health insurance? Well... You know, it was sort of an accumulation of factors. Being a classical pianist is a really hard road to hoe. Of all the careers I can think of, I mean, there are very few that are quite as difficult, and I mean difficult emotionally and mentally, but also just challenging in terms of making a livelihood. I think you could probably count on two hands the amount of people who are really doing well financially as classical pianists. Plus, it's you know, it's a very solitary career, and, you know, I was very happy doing it, but... You know, there comes a point, I think, where everyone needs to support their family, and it was a decision I was very reluctant to make, and it took a fair amount of prodding from the people around me to sort of help me to make the decisions I needed to make to actually change careers. I mean, it was a huge event in my life but I just think i 'm incredibly lucky that I managed to meet the right people at the right time and happened to have the right constellation of skills to sort of end up in this amazing field. I mean I really every day I come to work, and uh, I just think this is this is amazing
1: well, from what I understand, you had a brainstorming session with your wife in order <laughs> to decide what to do and determine what your talents were at the time you were looking to change careers and You made a list. And you included macrame, animal husbandry, <laughs> model rocketry, heraldry, yodeling, <laughs> antitrust mediation, jiu-jitsu, cryptology, forensic medicine, comparative theology, harpsichord maintenance, taxidermy, graphic design, historical reenactment. Rodeo clowning, cockfighting, <laughs> oyster fishing, oyster fighting, clown fishing. I didn't even know there were these such, these things existed.
0: Oh, you say these things and you think they'll never come back to haunt you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, so they're not true. None of these were your ex- areas of except expertise, except for the graphic
0: design part. Well, and really? maybe the jujitsu if I'm in a, <laughs> oh, a I was. <laughs> I was actually.
1: I was actually hoping that cryptology and macrame were two things we could talk at. No, totally about.
0: hopeless at both. I. Assume.
1: So while graphic design was on the list, book design or book cover design was not. And ultimately, I think you describe your current vocation as one whose weird kismet of things where you find out you're supposed to be doing and never in a million years would have thought you'd be doing. How on earth did you get the job? (laughs) (laughs) How on earth did you become a graphic designer and a, a book designer?
0: I don't know is the short answer. I mean, I guess the longer answer is I've, you know, I've always been doing things that are, for want of a better word, visual, and um, you know, drawn things and sketched and made models and I'm a huge reader. Everybody in my family is a voracious reader. My late father was. My mother is. My sister is. My oldest daughter just eats books. I don't know why it is, but my family just loves books. So the reading component was there, and I I do remember during the interview, and I think maybe this helped me get a leg up, you know, when I was meeting with Chip and John Gall and Carol, I was so excited to see all of these Knopf forthcoming hardcovers on their shelves. And, you know, these were authors I was familiar with, and I honestly don't know. I really don't.
1: Now, Chip Kidd, the art director at Knopf does not suffer fools. So, <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> and, and so uh, from what I understand, you met Chip through a mutual friend. That's right. And that you clicked immediately, but from what I understand, you both approached the meeting with a whole series of expectations. And Chip, I heard that you and Chip laugh now about those expectations.
0: Yeah, Chip is asked to see a lot of people's work. Yes. Obviously, he is yes. a superstar and gets a lot of requests. And um, I think... Think that he always looks very closely at the things people bring him, and he's extremely generous. On the other hand, you know, you can't not but be jaded at a certain point seeing so much work. And I know that before the meeting, he was thinking, "Oh, this is another friend of a friend
1: whose substandard work." I have to pretend to encourage. Here's a guy who's done a couple of CDs and some sort of (laughs) self-produced
0: projects, and I think he thought it was going to be miserable. Maybe it was. I don't know. But you know, from my vantage point. I had found out about book design. I mean, you would think, having read a lot of books, that I would have thought about book design, but I really didn't until a little bit prior to that meeting. I was going to meet with this guy who made these things that wrapped the text that I was so invested in. I never thought about the outsides of the books. I just didn't. How did you think they were made? I just didn't think about it. What's funny is now, whenever I look at a book it's the primary thing that I'm interested in when I look at it. And I think, oh, that's incredibly sad. <laughs> it used to be so text driven, so idea driven. And now I look at these things as sort of vehicles for graphic design. And um, <laughs> I
1: love yeah, that, it's incredibly
0: wrong. <laughs> but you know, I, I was thinking, well, this is a career that I've just learned about and can't possibly be enjoyable to do. I can't possibly be good at it. And I'm going to meet with this guy and I'm going to ask him some questions about his, what his life is like. And then I'll go home and get drunk and maybe eventually go back to the piano. And it just didn't, it didn't work out that way. I should also say that right after meeting Chip, he introduced me to Carol Carson and John Gall. And John Gall is just an absolute master at what he does. He's also just a phenomenal guy. And I remember after meeting him, I left the building, which at that point was 299 Park, and just thought, I really need to work with that guy. He's extremely smart, and his work was just so beautiful. And, you know, Carol was hugely generous as well. And I I don't know, I guess they just saw something in my book that looked promising, and they took a gamble.
1: I read that Chip now describes you as a self-taught graphic designer whose skill and instinct seem to indicate that he had many years of formal training chained to the feet of Paul Rand and Alvin Lustig. In fact, if he were their love child, it would not surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) Would you say there's any accuracy to that? Could you be the love child of Paul Rand and Alvin Lustig? (laughs) Leave
0: it to Chip to go straight to sex. Um, (laughs) I, I don't know. Being chained to Paul Rand would probably not be a particularly fun thing i would imagine (laughs) what i've heard about him um you know what can you say i mean their work is the work to emulate i mean i i love their work dearly actually on the way over here there was a guy on the street selling books and uh he had an alvin lustig new directions cover i was so excited i picked it up for 20 bucks yeah oh that's fantastic
1: now i I, oh really wow you hit the mother load coming over here today
0: yeah he had no idea what he had
1: so, I understand that your parents had a copy of Alvin Lustig's New Directions America That's right. on their shelves when you were growing up. And That's did right. that influence you? I mean, even though you didn't really know how yeah. book covers were made? I mean, right. was it? I mean, I
0: think you osmose these influences, whether you're conscious of them or not. I mean, there were definitely iconic books in the 70s. Those books were made in the 50s, but, but there were books that everyone in the 70s sort of had on their shelves. I'm thinking, like, you know, Shogun, the Clavels, things like that. The Godfather. And, yes, exactly. Right, the right. Yeah. yeah, that's right, the puppet. And, um, you know, definitely they had some of those, those great New Directions hardcovers. And I don't remember ever looking at them before I was a book jacket designer, but definitely subsequently I've remembered that they had them. And, you know, now I collect Alvin Lustig's covers for New Directions. I have a whole mess of them on my shelf. They're some of the only books that are facing out in my room.
1: Now, when you started at Vintage, you were basically self-taught. What was the first book you worked
0: on? Well, you know, the first things I worked on were back ads. I was asked on the first day to do a mechanical, which was a term I had never heard before. What year was this? What year is it now? 2011. (laughs) was 2001. Okay, so 10 years Um, ago. Maybe 2002. Yeah, I'm just coming up on 10 years. You know, first I called my wife in a panic and said, I've been asked to make a mechanical. I have no idea what this is. How... <laughs> you got me into this. Get me out of it. And, uh, you know, then I Googled mechanical and that I was, was totally say- unhelpful, actually. <laughs> Why? Well, because the word mechanical is an incredibly vague and rich word. It means a lot of things. But, you know, the actual markup of a book jacket was not one of the things that came up. So I ended up asking (laughs) another designer and they were hugely patient with me. And I made this really horrible back ad for someone else's design with huge horsey type. And I just had no idea what I was doing. I mean, it was, you know, it was definitely a learn on the job experience.
1: But yet, Chip, as as I mentioned, he doesn't suffer fools. He would not have helped you get a job there if he didn't see some remarkable talent in you.
0: I can only assume that that's true. Because I think the beginning, it must have been rough for the people around me because I really did not know what I was doing. But, you know, I'm a fast learner. And um, I, I think if you've learned to play the kind of pieces on the piano that I play, you've done harder things in your life than learn how to do a back ad for somebody. I mean, I know that sounds incredibly conceited, but I guess what I mean is... I picked these things up, and I think anybody could pick these things up. The aesthetic learning curve was steeper, I would say, in terms of learning what makes a really great book jacket. So what makes a really great book jacket? Oh, wow. Um, I'm sorry, you led me there, Peter. You have to answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess the bottom line is that it has to be beautiful, whatever you think that means. It has to either be stunning, shocking. It has to gravitationally pull you towards it. It has to be pretty. I think a lot of things about book jackets, but all of those things aside, the primary thing it has to be is pretty. It has to catch your eye. I mean, a book, a book really does three things. It advertises itself before you buy it. It obviously contains the text that you read. And then it interacts with you after you've read it in your house. So anyway, the first part of that equation is that it has to sell you the book. So in a way, that's Part of a big part of what we do as designers is, is advertise the thing. So it has to be compelling on some level. And then I believe the jacket does other things in those subsequent two stages, but you don't get to those stages without the first stage. You've got to make the sale. What makes a really great book jacket, though, I think, is a book jacket that evolves along with the reading of the text. That there should be, I think, ideally some point when a reader's reading a book that you've worked on where they will casually look at the jacket you've made and there'll be some sort of connection made. That you have made some sort of nod towards the text, towards the narrative, towards whatever the author's themes are that will emerge at that point. And then I think you have to do a jacket that will stand the test of time in the sense that people will want it in their house because these things are ultimately, you know, souvenirs of an experience of having been somewhere. It's like when you go to a a foreign country, you pick up something to bring back with you. It's, it's, It's a token of your having been there, and it contains a little piece of that place. And I think the jackets should do the same thing, that they should... They should be a mnemonic device for reminding you of this incredible experience you've had, and you should want to keep it around. So I think, you know, that really the great jackets perform those three functions. I cannot believe I answered that question. <laughs> and you did it so beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. That was magnificent, Peter.
1: <laughs> because you've done so many books and you've worked with so many amazing authors, world-renowned writers— there does seem to be quite a big difference between the visual language of your typical bestseller and the visual language of a book that's written by, say, Dostoevsky. hmm Can you talk a little bit about the different approaches that you have to take for different types of books?
0: What we try to do, I would say, when we're making a book jacket, is first and foremost, like I said, you're trying to sell the book, so it has to be pretty. Another thing we do is that we try to represent the text – you know we read the book and we try to represent the narrative Do you read um, every
1: book that you design?
0: I mean there are some outliers, you know if i have to read a 1000 page history book i may not get through the whole thing. The truth is as my career has progressed i've i've actually had to do more work for whatever reason i always thought you got to be at a certain point and you could sort of hand things off to other people, but <laughs> strangely, between the Knopf and the, you know, I'm also the art director of Pantheon, so I have that whole list as well. I have, an, I have freelance art direct, uh, Japanese imprint. The workload is such that increasingly I'm finding it difficult to get through everything. I'm also working on editing these days, so I have manuscripts from agents that I'm reading through. Uh.
1: Wow, so you're doing editing in addition to art direction. That's yeah. That's a very big jump.
0: I guess, although they're both, both professions really are concerned with parsing text. As an editor, you don't really have to reinterpret text, but you do have to be able to read deeply and, you know, pull out the narrative strands and all of that.
1: So, but you're looking at work before it's signed if you're looking at work from That's right. agents. That's right. That's right. So, um, are you now determining who gets published?
0: You know, it's a very complex process getting someone published. It's really more of a communal uh, effort than it is one one man's work or one woman's work. You know, you read the thing, and if you really love it, then you have to assign readers, and they give reports, and everybody convenes. And there are very few editors who decide that something gets published these days unilaterally, the market being what it is. You want to feel pretty sure that the book you're putting out there is of literary merit, but also, most importantly, is going to make the company money. So So is there a tension
1: between those two?
0: Well, without crowing about Knopf too much. I mean, I feel that one of the things that Knopf has always done very, very well is maintain their literary standards while still putting out these books that sell incredibly well. I mean, there have been so many examples over the years. You know, just now we have this fantastic Julian Barnes book out that just won the Booker Prize. We have the new Joan Didion. You know, these are books that are on the sentence level extremely meticulously well-written and yet obviously are pleasing to a broad audience. Uh, We have... The New Murakami, which everybody seems to be turning out for, which Chip designed a beautiful cover for. You know, these are books that don't sacrifice their literary merits for popularity. And one of the reasons that I've stayed at Knopf all these years, I mean, the biggest reason really, other than getting to work with Sonny Mehta, who is my hero, uh, is that we get to work on these books that are just fantastic to read.
1: Now, why is Sunny Mehta your hero?
0: I think he's one of the few people at the helm of large publishing company who has impeccable taste, who lets us do our job, who's very interested to hear what we thought, not just about how the book should be presented graphically, but what we thought of the book. I feel very privileged to say that he and I have had many, many conversations over the years about literature in his office. And, you know, I, I really cherish those moments almost more than any other in publishing.
1: I would imagine that he still has unilateral approval over who gets published.
0: (laughs) I think he has unilateral approval over everything.
1: (laughs) And so has he influenced your design work? Has he influenced your work in a specific direction?
0: I don't think he has, although he pushes, I think, a mandate, which is make it new, make it different, make it startling. And there are very few editors in, in publishing that believe that that really is a mandate. I mean, you know, there's a lot of pressure for these books to succeed, and that pressure tends to translate into people thinking that the safe thing to do is to do what worked in the past. So the methodology that I'm describing to you that I think Sonny subscribes to is one that is exactly the opposite of that. You know, for instance, those Steve Larson books that we did never would have looked the way they did with a different publishing house. They would have looked like big thrillers. right? And I think hopefully those books look big still, but I don't think they look like your ordinary thriller. And that was really because Sonny is willing to leave the comfort zone time and time again.
1: I want to come back to talk about the Larson books in a few moments. But in your years as a cover designer, you've designed for almost every imaginable genius, living and dead. The list of your covers reads like a who's who of the 19th and 20th centuries. Kafka, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy. How does one even approach doing a cover for a master like any of those:
0: there are pros and cons, obviously. The, the first pro that comes to mind is you don't have interference from the author. <laughs> I know that sounds incredibly stupid, but you know, no these are, no these are the things that can change a designer's life. If you're working on a project and you can steer the ship the way you want to steer it, it's an amazing thing and a, and a great feeling. On the negative side of the ledger, I would say you have the onus of, you know, these works being masterpieces, not wanting to fail them on some level. Um, The first classic I ever did, which is when I was at Vintage, those first nine months when I was designing, was Dostoevsky's The Idiot, which was an extremely important book to my father. Why? Well, my father was diagnosed with a brain tumor when I was about 11 years old. And, you know, there was significant neurological damage because of it until you know, the time where eventually it killed him. And I think he saw in the main character of this book, who's this kind of Christ figure who's epileptic like Dostoevsky was. I think he saw sort of a, a a character who is very much like himself. And I think that he felt some sense of kinship with the tragedy that Dostoevsky presents. Anyway, all that is to say that when I was offered the opportunity to design it, it was so laden. And, I did a lot of comps. I mean, I must have worked up a hundred things before I even dared to show anything to John. But, you know, ultimately the way that I got around the pressure that I felt with Dostoevsky was to make the books as abstract as possible. You know, they're these very sort of constructivists. They're all shapes, essentially. Shapes Very geometric. Very geometric. And... You know, I think by doing that, what you what you accomplish as designers, designer is you make a jacket that's a, that's sort of an empty vessel. I mean, I was trying to indicate very specific things. The idiot, there's a cross on it, which can be, you know, a Christian emblem, because this guy is clearly a Christ figure. On the other hand, it's a kind of erasure crossing out. There's a kind of negation that the cross does as well. But ultimately, it's, it's two black boxes that are overlapping. So it can mean almost anything. And, um, you know, we get away with a lot as designers just... Using vague symbolism, <laughs> I think you're. I think you're being
1: somewhat self-deprecating here. That book turned into a six-series Dostoevsky cover exploration. Yeah. Did you start that first cover for The Idiot knowing that you'd end up doing five more?
0: I didn't. It was only after the first one was approved that it occurred to me that, well, you know, the other ones weren't looking so great, and you know, what are the Dostoevsky's, how would I want the Dostoevsky's on my shelf to look, which ultimately is how I end up deciding if something's worth showing or not. If it's the kind of thing that I feel like, you know, I'm going to come back to this, I'm going to read it, and at the very least, the cover will be inoffensive. At the best, it'll be great and fantastic, and I'll love to have it around. So, you know, I pitched the idea to do the rest of them, and I think I did actually all the others in a single sitting, and it took a while to actually convince everybody to do it. But, you know, now yeah, I live in the Columbia neighborhood. I see students walking around with them. It's incredibly gratifying. Incredibly I, gratifying. I can only
1: imagine. Yeah. And I, I read that your personal mission at the time was to bring back abstraction and cover design.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked about Alvin Lustig. And yes. I don't really know much about design history. So I, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But when I first started, you know, I would I would look around and there didn't there seemed to be a lot of photographic Covers and not that many sort of illustrative covers, and especially
1: coming out of the world of Chip Kidd, Barbara Dewilde, right. Archie Ferguson, Carol uh, Carlson.
0: Yep, and and I've been told that that was the revolution that they were part of was yes. to bring the photograph back. And you know, my first inclination was to go in the opposite direction. I, you know, as a reader, I I don't really like to be shown that much of the narrative. I mean, it I feel like when a when a designer shows you too much, they're robbing you of, you know, your acts of imagination. I mean, that's that's a very very important part of reading. Also, I just I feel very akin to, you know, the constructivists and and um the suprematists and this is just art I just happen to love as well and Obviously, it's not period appropriate for Dostoevsky, but I was going to ask you. It's, it's um, yeah. not. It was. It was, is it was a bit of a, what I would call modern. Yes, exactly. And yet, I think that there was something about the affect of those stark shapes that works very well with his characterizations and the moods he sets.
1: You also seem to have a real fascination with Kafka. Yes. Talk about that.
0: Well, Kafka is an interesting case, I think, just because he's so widely misunderstood.
1: Why do you feel like he's so widely misunderstood? Well, I, I
0: think he has a bunch of projects going on, but one of those projects is to make you laugh. And I've always felt that Kafka is someone that's thought of in terms that would be uncomfortable to him were he to be alive. Uh, you know, I, I think of him as a very yay-saying author, not a naysaying author. And I think he's he's often put forward as a writer who's dealing with the darker aspects of... Of human nature. And I don't think that's who he is at all. And and so part of the project of, of sort of rebranding him, I guess, was to bring some of the sunlight back in to have people sort of reassess who this guy is. You know, why is there color on this Kafka? I thought he was this depressive middle European guy. <laughs> you know, I always <laughs> sort of wanted to start the conversation. So you're you're trying to rebrand Kafka? Yes. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. Um, and there are other authors I want to rebrand as well. Like who? Like who? You know, a lot of these authors who are on the Pantheon backlist and have been for years are people that I've been uh, interested in. Michel Foucault I did a couple of years back. We did every single last one, um, but which was a huge undertaking. About, so
1: when you're talking about rebranding, are you talking about a visual rebranding that you think will influence the way that somebody is ultimately thought of, or are you really looking at reframing the book?
0: Well, I think it's both. I think the cover is the representative out in the world of the book that it's wrapping. And I think that if you put forward a visual argument of some kind on the cover, that you're really asking people to look at a book in that particular light. With Foucault, a lot of his covers in the past have sort of dwelled on sort of the biographical aspects of the writer, the kind of, the gay stuff, the sadomasochistic stuff. I felt, you know, here's this guy who's, he's really fascinating, extremely whimsical in his own right, and can we do something that will sort of change the conversation for him? And so we did that. Um, Marguerite Dura is someone I'm interested in redoing. In She's what also way? Well, The Lover is a pillar of the Pantheon backlist and is an absolutely spectacular book. I just reread it recently with a view to redesigning it, and... It's uh,
1: hard to even imagine that covered any I differently. I hear
0: it all the time. But, and the truth but was all I, the re- all the more reason <laughs> to do it. You know, this was an interesting experience actually because I, I I thought, well, it's been so many years since we've repackaged
1: Was it Louise Feely that it did was, the cover? It was and
0: it's absolutely gorgeous. You know, it's a picture of Marguerite Duras, a young woman, and as as you know, that story is it's a novel that's semi-autobiographical. So there's this incredible sense of Slippage when you look at that photo because, well, is it a novel? Is it not an? It's a novel that has a picture of the author on the cover. It's extremely confusing and it's an incredible picture of the author as well. And of course, Louise's type is just absolutely gorgeous and. The truth is now that I'm saying this out loud, there's no way I can change. Thanks a lot. Sorry. Thanks, Louise. (laughs) But But there are others. But it's
1: interesting, though, that you can reframe the way somebody is perceived just by the visual language that you put out there. Well,
0: I didn't didn't think that was possible until the Kafka repackage. But that, that has just been immensely satisfying just for the response that I've gotten. I think people really love this guy and have felt for a long time that he's sort of misunderstood. And they just came out of the woodwork when we redesigned them.
1: So you've repositioned Kafka as a humorist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's more than that, but he is also that. What he's not is a pessimist.
1: How do you start designing a book cover? Do you sketch? Do you work on the computer straight away? How do you how do you
0: begin? I do sketch actually. I have a little pad by my computer and I just tend to quickly draw a rectangle and then draw something in it and then I tend to throw it away. The way I used to work in the past was to start with the typography and just sort of make the type look perfect and work around it. That's how the Stieg Larsons happened, and there are other books where I started from the type. But I soon found that those are the kind of books where, in, you know, the end result was the type looked great and they sort of lacked oomph in terms of concept. So so nowadays I, I really, yeah, I, I sketch very broadly and work with those sketches.
1: So let's talk about the Stieg Larson books. I have one here in the studio, which you said is haunting you. Why is that? Just because <laughs> I don't it's know, peering at, staring at you. it's the only thing you? that we're going to talk about. Oh gosh, no. <laughs> you know, I do no. these
0: interviews, and and you know, right off the bat, the first question I tend to get is, "What is it like to be the Stieg Larsen guy?"
1: Well, they are remarkable. They are reframing what is acceptable for a bestseller. It flies in the face, as you said, of the typical thriller. I know that there was an enormous amount of pushback from retailers about what you did. So I think it's it's a bit of an underdog story, which, of
0: course, people love. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think about it that way. It was a really tumultuous process getting that cover made. That being said, there's so many covers that, the road to the printer is just so fraught and bumpy.
1: Isn't that more often the case? I mean, I just know in yeah. design in general, yeah. it's a
0: bumpy, fraught road. Like I said before, I think the economics of it are such that no one wants to make a mistake. Um, and so people are very frightened of doing anything unusual. And yet sometimes you do something that's unusual and that grabs people's attention and it ends up selling more units. What I worry about with the Stiegler, I've never said this, but what I worry about with the Stiegler Larsen's is that there's some sense of false advertising about them. I mean, these are very violent, gruesome kind of Grand Guignol books, and they have, I don't want to say they're jolly looking, because they're not, but, you know, the first one in particular, it's very bright, and it's very colorful, and there's nothing on the cover to sort of indicate what goes on on the inside. And and. You know, there were definitely moments where, you know, my grandmother would call me and say, I really want that copy of that book that you just did the cover for. And I I think, Grandma, you really don't want to read this. And, and you know, I say this knowing that they are also sort of Trojan horses in a way for a, a very liberal, pro-feminist agenda. That Absolutely. I, that, yeah. And I... I you know, I'm proud of that aspect of those books. There's no question about it. And yet there's, there is also a kind of torture porn aspect to them that I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with. And sometimes I do wonder if the covers had participated, I guess, more in those tropes that we're used to seeing blood and that sort of stuff, that somehow they would be more representative of the books that they're the jackets for.
1: When you were designing the original cover, did you anticipate that there would be a lot of pushback?
0: No, and actually... To be totally frank, I started from a much bloodier place than I ended up with. (laughs) What was surprising to me is that that's not what people wanted. There's always pushback. I I think in this case, because Sonny was so clear right from the beginning that this book was going to be huge, he generated a fair amount of enthusiasm about it. And with that enthusiasm comes the onus of having to succeed. I mean, Sonny wants a book to do well and feels pretty certain that this is a book that has got the magic touch, then everybody wants to rise to the occasion, which obviously means me, but it also means the people in the marketing divisions and the sales divisions, and everybody wants to do it right, and that means that there's going to be a lot of conversation.
1: Were there any other designers working on covers besides you, or were you always the person that had no, this job? I
0: was the guy beginning to end, and since then, I've I've been the guy for you know we we get a lot of these. Big budget mysteries in now, and I just—I guess it's just assumed I'm going to do them. If there's a Norwegian, Scandinavian, Laplander <laughs> writer out there who's writing, you know, violent crime, I'm your guy. <laughs> Good to know.
1: <laughs> do you think that um, the Kindle and the iPad are influencing your
0: work? I wouldn't say they're influencing it. I would say that I feel the hot breath of the Kindle on my neck when I'm working. I know that there's going to be a moment where I'm going to be out of a job because... Why? Of there
1: are still covers in the books for Kindles and iPads? I
0: don't think they're quite the same as the covers that we have on physical books. I mean, my I, I don't have a Kindle. I have an iPad, which I use to read, actually. And I, I have not read an actual physical book in a fairly long time. I read almost everything on it. And it's very hard to get to the cover of the book. I mean, you see it when you buy it, and then it opens when you tap on it and then that's pretty much the last you see of it. The Kindle I really I really need to handle one I, I haven't but no I mean my feeling is if the Kindle continues to come down in price the way it seems to be doing that there will be a moment when if it's not free it'll be close to free and everyone will have them and the hardcover book will be a bespoke item there'll be fewer of them than we're producing now. They won't quite have the cultural relevance they used to have I worry about the paperback even more you know I don't want to be a gloomy Gus about it I just it seems if I'm going to be really open-eyed about it that there's a very good chance that I won't have a career in five years maybe less I mean I'm I'm I think about this a lot and I think especially having come from another profession altogether maybe I'm just you know I'm used to being on the balls of my toes a little bit you know actually I went from one obsolete profession to one that seems to be becoming obsolete (laughs) nice choice Mendelssohn uh but I'm not naive about these things. I think at the moment at which I'm really concentrating on designing tiny little images for Amazon is the moment where I need to do something else. And there are plenty of other things to do in the world.
1: And with your track record, you'll probably end up (laughs)
0: really well suited
1: to what you do next. And All those things I pretended to do at the
0: beginning of the uh, interview, I could do one of those.
1: (laughs) Oh, Peter, thank you so much for being on the show. And as far as I can hope and wish the book business will never go away. And I think that a large part of that will be because of the beautiful covers and the beautiful work that
0: people like you do. Well, I hope you're right. And thank you so much for having me, Debbie.
1: To get your hands on some Peter Mendelssohn, look no further than your local bookstore. To read his musings on the art of covering books, head on over to jacketmechanical.blogspot.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.